<laughs> Would you stand in honor of God's word? We're reading from Luke chapter 7, beginning with verse 36. This is about a dinner, but it's more than about a dinner. There's some, an encounter. There's some uh, thinking that needs to be straightened out. Let's get into it. Now, one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. That was the custom. When the woman, a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town, learned that Jesus was eating at the, the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume. And as she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two men owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii and the other 50, ten times less. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, as you and I might have, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said toward, to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet, but she wept. She wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has uh, poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, Your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, Who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. The word of the Lord. Thank you. Thank you, Gail. If you've been here for the past few weeks, you know that um, I'm drawing some parallels between what Joshua did as a conqueror of Canaan. Remember, Joshua and Jesus are really the same name. If Between what Joshua did in conquering Canaan and what Jesus was called to do when he came to conquer in a different way. 
You know, other than the inhabitants themselves, perhaps the main obstacles that Joshua faced in taking the land of Canaan were the walls that surrounded many of the cities in that land. In order for those fortified cities to be conquered, the walls had to be breached somehow. I mean, that was not unusual in that day. That's how you protected a city. In fact, if you read through the, New, the Old Testament, especially with some of the kings, you'll see that it was important for them to fortify cities, to protect them in that way in case of conquerors, in case of war. Walls are a strictly defensive structure intended to keep the residents in and invaders or foreigners or conquerors or whomever out. And although there is not a lot of archaeological evidence remaining from the days of Joshua, we do know that the walls of some of those cities were very imposing structures. In particular, the walls of Jericho were thick enough that people actually lived in the walls and were wide enough at the top that a chariot could be driven along it. Pretty thick walls. Two instances from the book of Joshua, in two instances, we are told how the problem of the walls was overcome. At Ai, the enemies were lured out of the city, leaving the gates open, and Israel was able to enter the city without overcoming the walls. They tricked them. At Jericho, we know that God miraculously destroyed the walls and the armies of Israel were able to go straight in. Somehow, at every fortified city, the walls were overcome and Israel was victorious. Jesus had some walls to overcome in fulfilling His mission. They were not physical structures made of earth, or brick, or stone, but rather spiritual structures. Strongholds built on lies, and deception, and unbelief. In scripture, in the scripture that's our, that was our text today, that Gail read for us, we see some walls that come down. Bears between Jesus and those He came to save that will be obliterated. Jesus, in this case, had been invited by a Pharisee to have dinner, as Jesus often did. Jesus ate with people a lot. I think that was strategic. He had a good reason for doing that. And so Jesus accepted the invitation to go to Simon's house to share this meal with him. Something about sharing a meal that Jesus took advantage of. And I think there's a couple of things. Barriers tend to come down when you're stuffing your face. Let's admit it. Alright? It's harder to, re, to, to maintain, keep that mask on and maintain a facade when you're... Have you ever seen, you know, pictures, people take pictures at dinner and there's, you know, you catch yourself going... <laughs> Not cool. Barriers come down. And you have a captive audience. You have all these people who are there to eat, so they're not going to leave till they're done. So Jesus used this strategically. He had meals with people. And the, and the Scripture tells us today that they were reclining at table because they didn't eat the same way we did. You know, you've seen a lot of pictures of the, um, the Last Supper and they're all sitting up at a table like we would do. That's not what happened. 
Um, in that culture, the, the table was low. It was close to the floor. You actually kind of laid down, propped yourself up on a, on a, a like a cushion or, or the, the Romans tended to use, it was a kind of a couch affair. Um, it kind of went like this, you know, and can you get that shape? And you kind of put your elbow or leaned up on this higher cushion at this low table. And actually it was, um, the, the, the Romans used something called a triclinium. It was a three-sided table, so there were cushions on three sides of the table, and then you were basically served from that fourth side. And so the, that's what was ha- probably something similar to that that was happening at this particular time, and people were reclining at tables. So Jesus was basically laying down, probably propped up on an, able, on a, on an elbow, laying down, his feet extended out behind him. The houses uh, of well-to-do people were often built around an open courtyard, and the Pharisees were among the well-to-do. Often in the courtyard there would be a garden and or a fountain, and there in warm weather was where the meals were taken. That's where you ate. And it was the custom that when a rabbi was at a meal in such a house as this, people were free to come and listen to the words of wisdom that the rabbi might have to share. In essence, Jesus and, and Simon and the other guests would have had an audience while they ate. How would that make you feel? <laughs> that explains how the woman was able to be present at the meal. Because normally... Uh, a Pharisee would not invite someone like her to partake of a meal, but she was probably there with the crowd that came to hear the Rabbi Jesus and whatever he might have had to share with them that day. And so she finds a place at Jesus' feet and she begins to weep, shedding her tears on his feet and wiping them with her hair. Remember, they were laying down, so she was at his feet. She then kisses Jesus' feet and pours this valuable perfume on his feet. And at this point, then, we're given insight into what Simon's thinking. Uh Uh-oh. Ever get uncomfortable with the thought that Jesus knows what you're thinking? And so, we're given insight um, into Simon... The Pharisees' thoughts as Jesus discerned them. And so we see Simon's thoughts revealed here. And what we hear isn't very flattering. First of all, this is what Simon's thinking. This man is obviously not a prophet. He's not of God. In other words, we see Simon's unbelief. Okay? This man can't possibly be from God. If he were, Simon thinks, if he were, he would have known about this woman. In Simon's pharisaical view, only good people were worthy of one's attention. Even God's attention. Only good people were worthy of one's attention and association. He would never have allowed himself to be approached by this woman the way Jesus allowed her to approach him. Simon would not have done that. Simon's view of people was selective. It was judgmental. 
He did not understand that Jesus viewed people through eyes of love and acceptance. He just didn't get that. That wasn't his view of life. That's not how he saw people. The second thing we see in Simon's thinking is that this woman is a sinner. And so we see here his disdain and condemnation of this woman. She's a sinner. The word, the, the word sinner was a term the Pharisees used in a restrictive and condemning sense to refer to those they considered the very lowest persons both morally and spiritually. Okay, the very lowest. She was basically, an, shall we say, an untouchable in his way of thinking. You didn't, go, you didn't go near people like that. And the word, in fact, carried the connotation of sin that was both heinous and habitual. In other words, she was the worst of the worst. He wanted nothing to do with a person like this. Do we have anybody like that in our lives? Do we have maybe a class or a group of people that we... Just want nothing to do with them? Do we want nothing to do with people who have maybe addiction issues? Or we hear a lot in our culture now about people who are struggling with their sexual identity. Do we want to have nothing to do with people like that? Or people who come from a different cultural background or speak a different language or may not even be in the country illegally, do we just want nothing to do? Do we view them the way that Simon viewed this woman? See, Simon thought he had Jesus figured out and he thought he had the woman figured out too. So, Jesus understanding what's going on in Simon's brain, what he's thinking at that point, uh, tells him a story of two men who are in debt to a lender. Jesus was good at using stories this way, wasn't he? One owes a relatively a small amount, while the other owes uh, this large debt. And neither have the resources to pay the lender, and so the lender graciously cancels both of their debts. Wow. I could see it happening for the guy that only owed 50 denarii, but 500? Are you kidding me? Wow. Then Jesus poses a question to Simon. Which of these two men will love the lender the most? And Simon replies, I suppose the one who had the larger debt. And Jesus said, yeah, you've answered correctly. Then Jesus, it says, looks at the woman, but he's still talking to Simon. See, at this point, we need to understand a little cultural background here. When a guest entered a house, three things were always done. The host placed his hand on the guest's shoulder and gave him a kiss of peace. And you see, even in... Some European cultures, you know, they kind of do the kiss on me. Okay, it was something like that. It was a mark of respect that was never omitted, especially in the case of a distinguished rabbi. 
Beyond that, the roads of that day were what we would probably call, at least the ones that the people tended to use, they were dusty trails. And shoes were merely soles with straps attached, what we would call sandals. So cool water was always poured over the guests' feet to clean and soothe them. Finally, the guests had a small amount of olive or scented oil placed on their heads. These were considered common courtesies. This is just what you did. Good manners demanded they be done. And yet, Simon had done none of these things for Jesus. Kind of tells you about his attitude toward Jesus just coming in, doesn't it? And yet, this woman by her actions, had really done all of these things, except rather that at Jesus' head, she'd done them at His feet. And and the, the Scripture goes on to tell us that there's a connection between how much you love and how much you've been forgiven of, because that's why Jesus told this story about the lender and those who owed Him 50 and 500 denarii. There's a connection between how much you love and how much you've been forgiven of. And Simon and the woman were living, present illustrations of that truth. The point is that both owed a debt that was impossible to pay. One realized it and the other did not. Missed it. And so we see at this Point some walls of deception that keep Jesus out and people in. See, there were two walls of deception evident that day. Walls that keep Jesus out and us in, or that can keep Jesus out and us in. One came crashing down. The other, well, you'll have to make your own judgment about that. We see both these deceptions in the attitude displayed by Simon the Pharisee. Here's the first wall of deception. I'm a good person and I don't need Jesus. I'm a good person and I don't need Jesus. Simon was conscious of no need, felt no love, and so received or didn't even feel he needed forgiveness. Like the rich young ruler, remember? who came to Jesus and he thought he had all his spiritual ducks in a row. That was Simon. Yet there was something lacking. See, we see sin problems in Simon's life and his actions and his attitudes on this occasion. His attitude toward the woman, condescending, condemning, graceless. His attitude toward Jesus, unbelief, rudeness and his failure to extend even basic kindnesses to his guest, all revealed what was or was not in Simon's heart. You know, we live in a culture that measures goodness by its own standard. I determine what's good. I'm a good person. I don't need to be saved. So it's goodness according to me. Isn't it funny? I've never killed anybody. So I'm a good person. 
We hear people say those kinds of things. The problem with that is that that view doesn't align with what Scripture says. Jesus said in Mark 10.18, Why do you call me good? Only God is truly good. Well, that throws us all out right away, doesn't it? Isaiah 64, verse 6. We are all infected and impure with sin. When we display our righteous deeds, they are nothing but filthy rags. Oh. Like autumn leaves, we wither and fall, and our sins sweep us away like the wind. Romans 3.10, Paul quoting, actually quoting from Psalm 14, there is no one righteous, not even one, not even Simon. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But the reason we ignore those things and could ever say, well, I'm a good person, I don't need to be saved, is because of something that, that Jeremiah penned that said, the heart is deceitful and beyond cure. We fool ourselves. Or we allow ourselves to be fooled. So that was the first wall of deception. I'm a good person. I don't need to be saved. The other wall of deception we see again in the attitude of Simon. If this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. What do you think Simon was expecting to happen here? I mean, if Jesus knew what kind of woman this was, what do you think Simon would have expected to happen? If Jesus were really from God, he would rebuff or chastise this woman. Don't touch me. He would never allow someone like her to approach, to touch, touch to kiss. It was unthinkable. That's what, if, if Jesus were from God, that's what he would have done. Therein lies the other deception, and it sounds something like this. I'm so bad, Jesus would never forgive me. That's kind of what he was throwing over on this woman. I'm so bad, Jesus would never forgive me. There's that thinking out there too. Oh, I've done such horrible things that God could never forgive me. I've sinned so much and seriously that Jesus would never accept me. He would never forgive me. Those lies, that lie comes from hell itself. And in this case, was perpetuated by one of the separated ones, one of the godly men of Israel. This lie was perpetuated by a Pharisee. How contrary to the heart of God. Listen to the invitation of Isaiah in chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, God says, let's settle this. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. 
Isaiah says, Holy God says. Isaiah says, Holy God says, come to me. And the invitation is to those with serious, heinous, habitual sin in their lives. Scarlet and crimson were dyes or stains that were impossible to remove. It was like red Kool-Aid on white carpet. Yeah, you all know what I'm talking about. I mean, we're talking about serious stuff here. Those kinds of stains could not be removed, but God says they can come to me. Though your sins be like scarlet and like crimson, I will make them. I will make you white as snow. I can remove those things from your life. See, it doesn't matter what you've done. Come to me. And you will be forgiven and be made clean. Jesus said in John 6.37, Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. But some have a tendency to think that because of their sin, that God will treat them like the Pharisee treated this woman. Disdain, rejection, Isn't it ironic and isn't it sad that a sinful man who considered himself holy was unapproachable and a sinless man who is holy God was welcoming, gracious, and forgiving. That's Jesus. So this woman was received with love and acceptance. Max Lucado, in his book, When God Whispers Your Name, comments on this. He says this, I've never been surprised by God's judgment, but I'm still stunned by His grace. God's judgment has never been a problem for me. In fact, it always seemed right. Lightning bolts on Sodom, fire on Gomorrah, good job, God. Egyptians swallowed in the Red Sea, they had it coming. Forty years of wandering to loosen the stiff necks of the Israelites would have done it myself. Ananias and Sapphira, you bet. Discipline is easy for me to swallow, logical to assimilate, manageable and appropriate, but God's grace, anything but. Examples. How much time do you have? David the psalmist becomes David the voyeur, but by God's grace becomes David the psalmist again. Peter denied Christ before he preached Christ. Zacchaeus the crook. The cleanest part of his life was the money he'd laundered, but Jesus still had time for him. The thief on the cross... Hell-bent and hung out to die one minute, heaven-bound and smiling next. Story after story, prayer after prayer, surprise after surprise. Seems like God is looking for more ways to get us home than to keep us out. I challenge you to find one soul who came to God seeking grace and did not find it. Search the pages, read the stories, envision the encounters, find one person who came seeking a second chance and left with a stern lecture. I dare you, search, you will not 
find it. So this wall of deception, I'm so bad that Jesus could never forgive me, came crashing down long ago. Problem is, we sometimes try to rebuild it. Sometimes we who have already experienced the grace of forgiveness don't buy the lie. The wall has come down. No sin is bad enough. No sin is committed often enough that you can't come to Jesus. People need to know that. What did Jesus say to the woman that day? Look at verse 48. Your sins are forgiven. And then in verse 50, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Amen. Amen. That's what God wants to say to us, isn't it? Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. We're going to share in communion this morning. If we could get those who will be serving us to prepare. And gentlemen, as soon as you're ready, you can go ahead and begin serving the elements this morning.